Morning. <laughs> Time to wake up. Um, so we're in. We're continuing our series through the journey, which is um, this great thing where we're going through the entire Bible as a church. And as you can see, we're in the resonating hills. And so that song kind of seems a little random, but basically what it's kind of indicating is all creation is saying amen to God. Amen being from the Hebrew word, I believe, I trust. So kind of our goal for today is that we would join in on that song that we would believe, that we would trust. So um, open up your Bibles, if you will, to Psalm 103. All right, Psalm 103 of David. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all of his benefits. Who forgives all of your iniquity, who heals all of your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good, so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord works righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made known his ways to Moses, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is the steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame, and he remembers that we are dust. As for man, his days are like grass, He flourishes like the flower of the field, for the wind passes over it, and it is gone, and its its place knows it no more. But the steadfast love of the Lord is everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him, and his righteousness to children's children, to those who keep his covenant and remember and do his commandments. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens, and his kingdom rules over all. Bless the Lord. O you as angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works in all places of his dominion. Bless the Lord, O my soul. Let's pray real quick. Father, we ask that we would catch a glimpse a glimpse of your glory in the face of Christ Jesus today, and that we, along with David and all of creation, all of your angels, all of your armies, can shout amen to your glory. Allow us to fall in love with who you are by looking at what you've done for us. We pray these things that you might be glorified and that we might find our joy in you. Amen. So I want to start today by talking about a symbiotic relationship. All right, a symbiotic relationship is a relationship between two parties in which if you remove one, likely the other one is going to 
go extinct or some, some kind of harm is going to happen because both of these parties are helping each other mutually in some way. So an example of this from the animal kingdom would be the pistol shrimp and the goby fish. Okay? The shrimp goes down to the bottom of the ocean and it'll actually start making a burrow, like a little cave, a little house, so to speak. And a goby fish will find a shrimp's burrow and actually go in and kind of reside with it. And so pretty good deal for the, the fish, right? I mean, he's like, okay, you build my house, you pay for it, and then I'll come live in it. Um, so what does the shrimp get out of it? Well, the shrimp, he's blind. So when a predator comes, you know, it's, you know, buffet line. He's blind. He can't move. He, he doesn't know a predator's coming. He's going to have shrimp for dinner. Um, the goby fish will actually flick its tail several times tapping it against the shrimp to warn them when predators come. And so, hey, you build me a house, I'll warn you about that danger so that you don't get eaten. So that's a sim an example of a symbiotic relationship, but why on earth am I talking about a symbiotic relationship between a shrimp and a fish when we're looking at Psalm 103? The main reason is we find another type of symbiotic relationship in Psalm 103. It's the relationship between our worship of Yahweh and our remembering of his benefits. Okay, so those two things are related. Another way of saying this would be um, to quote lyrical theologian Shailen who said this, theology without doxology is dead and cold, hard orthodoxy. So the knowledge of God without glorifying God with that knowledge, it's dead, it's cold. However, doxology, glorifying God without theology, is idolatry. So worshiping God but not knowing him rightly is to fall into idolatry, to, to worship God for something he's not. This relationship is within this psalm because this psalm is pure theology. It's teaching us who God is um, by what he does. And the psalm is also about us worshiping God for who he is. And so we're looking at those things. The idea here, um, if you look at verse 2, it states, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. Notice that it doesn't say, and remember all his benefits, but it says it kind of in the negative. It's kind of to highlight to us that if we forget his benefits, we won't worship Yahweh, or vice versa. If we don't worship Yahweh, we will likely forget what he's done for us. All right? And so just to kind of give a little picture of this, Luke 17, Jesus, um, 10 lepers come to him and cry out for mercy, and um, Jesus heals them. All 10 of them, and he says, go wash and show yourself to the priest, because that's according to the law of Moses. And only one came back, and it says, as that one was coming back, he was throwing out praise to God, and he came and he fell at the feet of Jesus, and he worshiped him. And then Jesus looks at him and says, go, your faith has healed you. What about the other 10? Right? What? And that guy happened to be a foreigner. He wasn't even a Jew, so it was like not even the Jews returned to worship Yahweh for what he had done. And so the passage is just one thing that we ought to do when we see these benefits that Yahweh's done, we should return immediately and worship. And if we don't, likely, we're going to forget the benefits and we're not going to worship Yahweh like the other nine. Um, another thing that this psalm kind of paints is that remembering the benefits of what God's done for us as individuals and as remedy um, is our fuel for worship. It's the thing that fuels our worship. It's the thing that sets fire to our worship. And so what's at stake in the psalm? 
Right? The worship of God is at stake at the psalm. So two things from the psalm, right? Just condense it. Worship God. We must worship God. Second, we must remember his benefits. We must remember what he's done. So before we actually actually dive into the text of the psalm, I want to set out two kind of structural things that I think will be helpful um, before we actually go in. The first thing is look at verses 1 through 2, and it, this is really all throughout the psalm, but look at the term LORD, L-O-R-D, all caps. Hebrew, it's Yahweh, the name of God. The, the term LORD, all caps, or Yahweh, is used 11 total times in the psalm. It's the, most, it's the word that's used the most throughout the psalm, which just clearly indicates to us this is a psalm about Yahweh. It's about who he is. It's, it's pure theology, as I've mentioned before. Um, but as we read through the psalm, you'll notice that they don't, you know, take attributes and go through them systematically. Let's talk about his mercy. Well, boo, 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 boo. Let's talk about his love. Do, 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 do. It's not systematic, but rather what it does is it shows all these things, these wonderful things that God has done. And then we're supposed to look at his works and say, what kind of God does such wonder? What, who, what, what kind of God is this who does such wonder? The second structural thing, the, the, the term steadfast love in the Hebrew is hesed. Um, Fudd's next child, right? That's what he told me at least. I don't know if he's telling the truth. Um, the steadfast love, hesed, it's used four times throughout the psalm. And, all, and you know, when you break the psalm out, it's in three major parts, and hesed makes its way into each part. Um, this term for steadfast love stands for faithfulness and covenantal love and the relationship that Yahweh shares with his people. And so when you see this term, it should kind of immediately serve as a catch-all term for who God is. So if we could condense down and one, uh, give a one-word description of who God is from the perspective of the people of God, it would be chesed. He is one who has steadfast love. And so what we're going to do in this psalm is we're going to see how God's chesed shows up in his benefits to, to us. And so let's just go ahead and dive into the text. The route that we're going to take today is there's three parts to this psalm. So there's three vantage points from which we can look at the benefits of God or three different lenses through which we can look and see the benefits of God. Or another way of saying it, there's three different ways by which we can remember the benefits of God. So go ahead and look at verses 1 through 2. Let's dive in. In verses 1 through 2, you get this, Bless the Lord, O my soul, all that is within me. Bless the Lord, O my soul, forget not his benefits. It's a peculiar call to worship. So when, da when, um, when, uh, when David is doing this, he's, he's not just like calling out to Israel like you would think he would be doing. Like Jordan, right? He comes out and he, he gives us a call to worship. Hey, Remedy, come worship the king. Let's look at scripture, reflect who he is, and let's sing a song. Come worship the king. David's not doing that here. Instead, he's talking to his soul. He's calling himself to worship. He's saying, bless the Lord, O my soul. He's commanding himself um, to worship. And so let's look at two words in verses 1 through 2 that will help us out. The term bless, what exactly is that meant? Well, normally bless is to bestow some kind of gift or you're, you're blessing someone. You're, you're giving them something that's, you know, benefiting them. But, you know, is David really saying that we're bestowing, 
you know, blessing upon the source and the fountain of all blessings, like God, like he gives all blessings. How can we bless that? Is that what David's really saying? Very simply put, bless here doesn't mean bestow or render a gift to God, but rather, as one translator put it, bless here means to declare God to be the source of blessing, or another way of saying this, praise the Lord, O my soul, or another way, worship the Lord, O my soul, give thanks to the Lord, O my soul. So bless here is synonymous with worship, praise, give thanks. So that, that's um, that. Another thing for the word bless, and we don't see it in the English, but in Hebrew, it's in what's known as the peel stem, which gives us two ways to understand what David's saying with this word bless. He could be saying bless, like exaggerating it. So um, if you took the English word to break and you put it in peel stem, it wouldn't be break, it would be shatter or crush. So it just intensifies the word. So bless becomes Super bless, right? Um, the other way of understanding appeal stem would be continuously. So David's not saying bless, but he's saying bless and bless and bless and bless and bless the Lord, oh my soul. Either way, I mean, it really condenses down to the same thing. David is all out gung-po serious about calling his soul into the worship of his God. He's intensely calling himself um, into worship. And so you'll come to the phrase, the last little phrase in verse 2, forget not all his benefits. The rest of the verses 3 through 6 basically outline those benefits that he's talking about. And so we find five kind of ways in which um, David describes Yahweh. Yahweh, our God, is the one who forgives. Yahweh, our God, is the one who heals. Yahweh, our God, is the one who redeems. Yahweh, our God, is the one who crowns. And finally, Yahweh is the one who satisfies. Um, these verses carry a profound punch of just precious and praiseworthy promises. I can't think of any other P's. Things that we need to worship God for. And so let's just you know, take a look at these. As you're scanning through verses 3 through 6, you'll notice something that it's Yahweh redeems your life from the pit or um, he crowns you with steadfast love. And it's really easy to miss this, but is David like now, he just talked to his soul, is he now expanding out and talking to his audience? Is that what's going on here? Well, this was like super tricky to me, but in the Hebrew, the you, the your, the my, all those things are in the second um, pers person, singular feminine. All right, now that, if David was talking to the people of Israel, it would be second person plural, right? So what is David doing here? What's this you? Well, it actually points back to the word soul because that's the only other thing in this psalm that's second person singular feminine. And so every time he says your life, my life, in the first six verses, um, you, he's not actually talking to you. He's talking to his soul in the second person. So literally what we have here is David is, he's talking to himself. I mean, right? That's a little weird, right? No, it's not. You know, this is probably the main reason why I think David could be considered a man after God's own heart because he's so serious about the worship of Yahweh. He's constantly demanding even of himself, preaching a sermon to himself to worship Yahweh. And so um, this brings us kind of to our first vantage point 
in verses 1 through 6. And so we can put that up on the screen. The first vantage point of worship is that I, my soul, need to remember um, Yahweh, that how Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to me. I, my soul, need to remember how Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to me. Verses 1 through 6. So David is literally preaching to himself. And so just real quick as application, when we wake up in the morning, man, talk to yourself. I mean, convince yourself of the benefits that Yahweh has done for you in Jesus Christ. Preach the gospel to yourself. I know we, we talk about that all the time, but here's an example of literally David is talking to himself, demanding of himself to intensely worship the Lord. And I think we need to also do that. So let's look through these five benefits. Um, and so the first vantage point is from an individual vantage point, from the vantage point of my own soul, right? So let's look through these benefits. Number one, Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to me, the individual, by forgiving all my iniquity. So in Christ Jesus' remedy, all of your sins, your individual sins, have been forgiven. I mean, just take time to just think through your sins and the greatness of them and the, you know, how many they are. Christ has forgiven us. Yahweh has forgiven us. Second benefit. This is also in verse 3. Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to me, the individual, by healing all my diseases. Sin and disease are tied together in verse 3 in a parallel kind of relationship. Kind of just to indicate to us when Adam allowed sin to enter into the world, disease also entered into the world. And so there's a close relationship between sin and disease. And um, the promise here from God is that he heals all of our diseases. Now, are we saying then that we should never be sick, right? That Jesus has healed us, that we, we should automatically, like when we come down with a fever, but you just lay hands on us and immediately, boom, we're healed. Like we should never suffer sickness. There's an already not yet aspect to this promise. We do have examples throughout the Bible, throughout life, in which God heals people, supernaturally heals them. But he doesn't always do that. And even those people that get healed, they get sick later on. And then ultimately they die later on. Look at verse, you know, verse 4. The next promise is he redeems our life from death or the pit. So, well, we know that we're all, unless Jesus comes back before, you know, we get to a certain age, we're all going to die. But yet he promises here that he's going to redeem us from death. So it's an already not yet. Yes, does he do things like this? Lazarus was raised from the dead. Did Lazarus likely die again? Yes, he died again. Um, but here's the thing that we should hold on to, and here's the thing that can give us fuel for worship. All promises will find their yes and their amen in Jesus. When Jesus comes back, disease will be vanquished altogether. Sin will be gone altogether, and we will be ultimately redeemed from death. Death will no longer have its sting. So number three, verse four, we already kind of hinted at it. Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to me, the individual, by redeeming my life from the pit. The term pit here is used all throughout the Old Testament um, to stand for death. Um, pit's also kind of synonymous with Sheol, 
which is the place of death, according to the Jews. Or in the New Testament, it's called Hades, the place of death um, for the Greeks. And so he's going to redeem us from death. So just to point this out for us, Remedy Church, what this means is when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he brought death to death. You know, there's a Puritan named John Owen who wrote a book called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And the title really, you don't need to read the book, just you know, focus on the title because that's basically the book. It's a really thick book, but he basically just says that over and over again. The death of death and the death of Christ. He's redeemed us from death. Um, on the third day when he's buried, he bursts through the doors of death, you know, forever opening the doors of death, bringing with him his saints in the resurrection. We have this great promise that as Christ rose from the dead, we will also be risen from the dead. And so that's kind of what we should be focusing on here with this third benefit. Those three all kind of go together in the sense that when God created man and woman, um, you know, there was no sin. There was no disease or sickness and there was no death. And so really these three benefits just bring us back to kind of where we were supposed to be, right? He's restored us kind of to where we were pre-fall. But these next two benefits, they go above and beyond that. God actually adds something to us. It, it's more than just restoration, but it's, he's adding something. So look at number four. This is also second half of verse four. Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to me, the individual, by crowning me with steadfast love and mercy. Um, I love the way that Rolf Jacobson in his commentary said this, so I'm just going to quote him and he's going to speak on my behalf because he just captures it. Here, the metaphor the term crowned, paints the, the blessings that the self has received from God as those befitting a king. Rather than crowning the soul with precious metals or jewels, God has crowned the soul with steadfast love and mercy. And this is it. This is where we explode in worship. That is, God has reached into God's very own character and transferred God's own attributes onto our souls in an act of blessing. So not only has he forgiven our sins, he's healed our diseases, he's redeemed us from death, he's made us like him. He's crowned us to be like himself. I mean, that's, I just want to like, you know, right now, Jordan, come on back up. Um, number five, verse five, and this one's good too. Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to me, the individual, by satisfying me with good. The effect here for satisfied is the idea of you're really hungry, you just ate an awesome you know, steak dinner or whatever your favorite food is, and now you're satisfied. Um, it's in the hippil stem in Hebrew, and it's kind of like the PL. It just intensifies it. And so literally what's going on here is basically we have been satisfied by good so much so that we will never ask for it again. Like it, it's just, it's always there. The satisfaction will never leave. We'll never get hungry for good again. We will always be full of good forever. That's kind of the idea there. Notice that David ties on kind of a little picture, um, you know, analogy or simile. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So that your youth is renewed like the eagles. David's likely referring to the, the yearly kind of molting process in which an eagle kind of starts shedding its feathers and then it grows back new feathers. And so from the naked eye, you look at an eagle 
it looks old, but then after this molting process, it looks brand new again. And so kind of this concept of he's renewing our youth. You know, we're going to look old, but we're going to have energy to praise Yahweh like never before. I mean, I kind of think of like Caleb and Joshua in the book of Joshua, like the dude's like 89 or something. And he's like, I, you know, I might be 89 years old, but I'm going to go take this part of the land for Yahweh. And then it says like he fought and he took over the land and it literally says he fought like he was a young man. It's kind of that concept. Um, and again, balance it. I'm not saying like, hey, Jesus is the fountain of youth for us that we're not going to like need a cane when we grow up or something like that. But all promises find their yes and amen in Christ. So the first vantage point is we consider I, our own souls, right? What Yahweh has done, how he's demonstrated his steadfast love for us to, to me. This brings us to our second one. David's going to go from talking to his own soul to now finally talking about himself and the people of God or Israel. Or for our context, me talking about myself to going to talking about remedy and myself as well. So he's going from individual to community. So the second vantage point of worship is that we, as the church, the people of God, need to remember how Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to us. So verses 1 through 6, David's calling to himself. Now the scope changes. It's going out to the people of God. The yous and the yours become us and our and so now we're going to remember Israel's benefits as well. Look at verses 7 through 8 because I kind of want to, this is a good kind of opening for this, this part of the psalm. It's a kind of a tradition that the psalm's kind of couched in. Verse 8, you know, says, Yahweh is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. This is a direct quote from Exodus 34. Exodus 34. And so kind of get some context. Exodus 34, kind of 1 through 9. Israel had just built the golden calf, right? Aaron, hey, give me your gold. Hey, I threw this gold in and out came this calf. I had nothing to do with it. Um, that, that passage. Literally, as Moses is walking down the mountain with the Ten Commandments, which basically say, hey, don't worship other gods. And so Moses sees this. He throws the commandments on the ground, shatters the rocks, right? That's right when this passage is now taking place. Moses is now commanded to, to basically, you know, carve out two more, you know, tablets of um, Ten Commandments. And so Moses is doing that. And he took the original, um, and as he does that, it says this in verse um, 5. Yahweh passed before him, or the Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And that's exact quote that we get from Psalm 103. And so this kind of becomes, this little confession of Yahweh becomes kind of Israel's creed. We can see it all throughout the Old Testament. Just give us a couple examples. Psalm 86, 15. Psalm 145, 6. Joel 2, 13. Numbers 14, 18. Jonah 4, 2. It's all throughout the Old Testament. This little, he's gracious, he's merciful, he's slow to anger, he's full of steadfast love all the way throughout the Old Testament. And then take note, you know, we are, we're not looking at the actual passage, but Exodus 34 ends with this. It says that Moses bowed at once and worshiped. So Yahweh passes before him and yells out who he is, and then the immediate reaction is Moses bows at once 
and worships. And that's exactly what this psalm is basically telling us. Look at Yahweh passing by us through the benefits that he's giving to us. Bow at once and worship. So that's kind of the tradition that this is couched on. And so let's look, um, let's look at the benefits that he gives to us as the people of God. And there's five of these as well. Verse 6 tells us, Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to us, the church, by working righteousness and justice for all who are p- oppressed. And again, already not yet. He will set right the wrongs of all the history of the world. He will. Will he do it today? Will he do it now? Sometimes we get examples in which he does set right some kind of oppression. So just to give a popular example, the Israelites were in Egypt. They were being oppressed as slaves. And Yahweh took them on the Exodus journey, right, through the Red Sea. He set that oppression right. Um, There's others that, you know, he hasn't yet set right. But the promise still remains that all of it will be set right. The greatest oppressions this earth has ever seen will be set right. Because we know that when Jesus comes back, sins no more, and every tear will be wiped away. And so to hang on to that benefit that's been given to us in Christ. Second one, this is verse 7. Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to us, the church, by making known his ways and who he is. Right before Exodus 34 is Exodus 33, right? I can count. Yes. Um, Exodus 33 is this, probably my favorite passage in all of Exodus. Moses goes into, he, he basically, he gets to this point in which he's like about to explode and he's like, God, just show me your glory. That's what he says. He just says straight up, show me your glory. And then Yahweh says, okay, I'll place you in the cleft of the rock, of a rock, right? And I'll pass by you and you'll get to see my back. So that's kind of the passage that's going on here. And I'm just going to read this because I, I think this is amazing. And this is another thing where I would be like, Jordan, come up and sing another song. Moses in the cleft of the rock was able to gaze at the back of God in Exodus 33. But we in the wounds of Christ, because he's the rock that was clefted, we in the wounds of Christ are able to gaze at the face of God. Or another way of saying it is, if God made himself known to Moses, a servant, in the house of the Lord, how much more will God make himself known to sons and daughters in the house of God? That's kind of logic from Hebrews chapter 3. Um, if God revealed himself greatly to Moses, how much more greatly to the one who's actually a son in the house of God? So number three, this is verse 9. Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to us, the church, by not always chiding and keeping his anger. Um, that that phrase, uh, slow to anger, <laughs> it's really funny. In Hebrew, it means long of nose. Long of nose. So it's literally saying Yahweh has a long nose. Now, it's a Hebrew idiom that means slow to anger. But the idea is that by the time he starts getting mad, it takes a lot of time for his anger to pass out all the way through his nose to the nostrils to where they start flaring up and he just starts you know, pouring it out right? He's long of nose. We, you know, he's not a liar like Pinocchio. He's slow to anger, right? So that's kind of the idea here. And just think about all the things. I mean, I can just think of all the things that I've done in my own life that would make God anger, angry. And I, I'm just <laughs> extremely grateful that his nose is longer than mine. Um, number five. Sorry, number four. Verse 10. 
Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to us, the church, by not dealing with us according to our sins. David already kind of covered this from a, a, the perspective of talking to his own soul. Hey, your sins, O soul, has been forgiven. Now he's going from a community perspective. Not only my soul's sins, but all of our sins have been forgiven, right? And this is not just forgiven. It literally says that Yahweh, he doesn't deal with us according to our sins. So the way that we ought to be treated, he doesn't treat us. That's kind of the idea here. And so we kind of ask this question, well, God, how can you treat me like I'm righteous, like I'm sinless? And the answer again is found at, you know, while gazing upon Jesus on the cross, because it's there in which Jesus, the righteous one, is treated like a sinner, so that sinners then can be treated like righteous ones. The great exchange, as Martin Luther would call it. Um, and look at verse 12, because it's kind of tagged on to this as well. It's, I call it a simile of infinity, because it's a simile, and it's literally infinite in its um, picture. And so look at verse 12. It says this, As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. And so you ask the question, well, how far is the east from the west? We start walking east. At what point in time do you get west when you walk east, right? The idea is, from the Israelites' perspective, you can't measure the distance between east and west. Just like you can't measure the distance between your sin that, God, that Yahweh and God has forgiven and now how he's treating you, yourself. And so he has separated our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. So let's look at number five, the last one. Yahweh demonstrates, this is verse 13, Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to us, the church, by showing compassion as a father shows compassion on, children, on his children. And then I would also kind of add, as a father ought to show compassion on his children, because, you know, we have examples of fathers not showing compassion on children. Even in my own life, I have examples in which I get frustrated with Eliana or, or whatever. Um, but as a father ought to show compassion on his children. And it goes more than just viewing God as our earthly father, like he's an earthly father to his earthly children. It goes beyond that. It goes into like creation, viewing him as the creator father. So it kind of extends its scope. So look at the last um, part of this verse. For he, or Yeah, verse 14. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. This is harking us back to Genesis 2-7 when God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. The man became a living creature. So he's, he's not just, you know, he doesn't just show compassion as an earthly father ought to show compassion, but so much more than that. He's the guy that created and set up all things. So he also shows compassion as the creator, the sustainer of all life. So how great is his steadfast love toward us, his people? Going back to verse 11, it's another simile of infinity, and this kind of just um, captures all the blessings that we just looked at. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. There's no one that I know of that can measure the distance between the heavens and the earth. Once again, it's this idea that his steadfast love demonstrated to us is so great that it's beyond measure. So even when we're going through these benefits, we don't even get, you know, we're, we're just, you know, scratching at the surface of the steadfast love of Yahweh. So the first vantage point is from an individual perspective. 
to convince our own souls of the great benefits that Yahweh has done. The second one is now kind of extending out to convince ourselves as the community, as the people of God, of the benefits that he's done to us. This brings us to our final kind of vantage point for worship. So number three, we, as a part of humankind or mankind in general and creation universally, need to remember how Yahweh demonstrates his steadfast love to those who fear him. So now it's the idea of, okay, let's remember all those benefits, but now let's put them on the backdrop of mankind in general and creation universally. Let's look at them through the backdrop of that. So the psalm begins with David talking himself. Now he's talking to the people of God and then he's saying, hey, people of God, look at all creation and mankind in general and think about the benefits of Yahweh. So let's look at three brief things. First one will come from verse 15 through 16. It says this, As for man, his days are like grass. He flourishes like a flower of the field. For the wind passes over it and it is gone and its place knows it no more. It's grass season, right? <laughs> I mean, last month, you've probably pulled out your lawnmower and have mowed the lawn. Think about, you know, after you mow the lawn and the wind blows, you see all the grass just kind of scattering. You don't know where it ends up. Yeah, I mean, you just forget about it completely. It's gone. You don't, I mean, you're not like, oh, no, my grass. I got to find it. Um, you're not like that. Um, think about maybe men. The time that you grabbed a flower or, you know, bought a flower or bought flowers if you were really good and you brought it to your wife or maybe your daughter or son probably wouldn't like that. Um, and you brought them flowers, right? How long did it take for those flowers then to fade? And, you know, the beauty that they once had just kind of fades into, you know, it dries up. That's kind of the picture analogy here that um, we're getting for the life of man in general. And so... Um, that phrase that it, it knows, its place knows it no more, that's coming out of Job 7.10. Basically, um, it says this, he returns no more to his house, nor does his place know him anymore. Talking about a man who just died. He doesn't return to his house, and eventually his place, it knows him no more. It forgets his memory. And so the brevity, the frailty, the futility of man is kind of put on display here. There's a church father... Cappadocian church father of early church, Gregory of Nazianzus, and he kind of said this, and I, I, I love this quote because this just gets us down to business. Our life on earth, brothers, is such that our existence is very transitory. We play, as it were, a game on earth. We do not exist, and we are born. And being born, we are dissolved. We are like a fleeting dream, an apparition without substance, the flight of a bird that passes, a ship that leaves no trace on the sea. We are dust, a vapor, the morning dew, a flower growing, but a moment and withering in a moment. So to summarize that, life is short, right? Life is short. But look at verse 17 through 18. Here comes the contrast. He doesn't leave us with light. Life is short. But instead, he paints the eternal, steadfast love on the canvas of our frailty and our futility, our shortness, right? So it says this, life is short, but the steadfast love of Yahweh is from everlasting to everlasting on those who fear him. Um, Rolf Jacobson takes that phrase, those who fear him, and I think he expounds this really, so I'm going to again read from him. Some interpreters regard this as an indication that the psalm still has Israel, just Israel in view. 
um, like Vantage Point 2 that we talked about. But in the Psalms and elsewhere, the concept of God-fears existing among the nations is prevalent. And so simply put, likely this is not just the Jews, but it's all God-fears everywhere. All nations. Um, So this is not just referring to Israel, but also all nations who have turned to fear Yahweh. And just simply put, fear is equivalent with worship. Those who have now dedicated their lives to Christ, to, to worship Yahweh. Um, and so the steadfast love of Yahweh is everlasting and everlasting to those who are in Christ Jesus, whether Gentile or Jew, male or female, um, as the list goes on, to those who keep his covenant and do his commandments. And so life is short, but God's faithful, loving relationship with us has no end. That's the contrast, and it's a blessed contrast. And verse 19 is the end of essentially David beckoning us to remember the benefits. And then he's just going to explode into worship, but we'll get to that. So look at verse 19. It's kind of in a a chiastic structure, meaning just simply put, what is being emphasized is found at the center. So let me read it. The Lord has established his throne in the heavens and his kingdom rules over all. In Hebrew, the word order switched. It says this, the Lord in the heavens has established his throne. His kingdom over all rules. And so the two things that come to their way to the center and they're actually related to one another, throne, kingdom, throne, kingdom. And so what's being proclaimed here is Yahweh is king of the universe. King of the universe. And so, you know, I hear this all the time, so I'm going to go ahead and say it too. Um, It's hard for us to rightly feel what it means to be king, right? Because we, most of us, if not all of us, have grown up in America, right? Democracy, Republican, you know, Republic, whatever we are now. Um, you know what I'm saying? Um, so let me kind of put it in American terms, right? American terms. This is what it means that Yahweh is king. Jesus is the executive, legislative, and judicial branches of the universe's one government. He's the president, the vice president, the secretary of agriculture, the secretary of commerce, defense, education, energy, health and human services, homeland security, housing and urban development, interior, labor, state, transportation, treasury, and veterans affairs. He's the attorney general. He's the local county, state, and federal judges. He's the Supreme Court justices. He's the 100 senators of the Senate. He's the 435 representatives in the House of Representatives, and he has no checks and balances save for himself. His checks and balances are his own nature, namely that he's merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding and in steadfast love. And as C.S. Lewis famously pens, safe, said Mr. Beaver, Don't you hear what Miss Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's what we mean by Yahweh is king of the universe. There is nothing outside of his dominion. This is what it means for him to be king. And it's to this point that we must come when we're reflecting on our benefits because it makes the benefits so much greater knowing that Yahweh is king because the benefits that he gives us are kingly benefits. These are things that are handed down, not just from some, you know, dude. These are benefits given to us from the guy who runs everything. And so that's kind of where David's going to, you know, hang his gloves and say, dwell on that. And this is where he turns then. So look at the next several verses. 
Bless the Lord, O you angels, you mighty ones who do his word, obeying the voice of his word. Bless the Lord, all his hosts, his ministers who do his will. Bless the Lord, all his works, in all places of his dominion. After going from individual reflection to community reflection to universal reflection, David now turns back to all of creation, the angels, the armies of God, all of his works everywhere, the trees, the mountains, the stars, the planets, men, women, children. And he turns to them and he says the same thing that he started with, bless Yahweh. And so kind of as Piper pointed out in his book, um, Let the Nations Be Glad, um, Worship exists, or sorry, mission exists because worship doesn't. The reason we go out and we invite people to come to Christ is so that they can then join in on this great worship that David is just outlining in front of us, right? Piper's kind of pointed that out, but let me point out kind of another side note. Yeah, mission exists because worship doesn't. But any time that we worship Yahweh, it naturally leads us into mission, And what I mean by mission is the open declaration to everything in the universe, commanding everything, demanding everyone to join in on this worship. For us as Remedy Church, what that means is when we make our souls happy in God by reflecting on his great benefits, we will be led into inviting everyone to come worship this Christ who is king. That's what what the bottom line here is. And so, you know, application, right? The whole thing's applicable. I would just simply start your day off commanding yourself to worship Yahweh. Then turn out and just reflect on as a community in small groups or any time that you meet together on Sunday mornings. Reflect on the great benefits and always do that in light of the brevity of life and the eternal steadfast love relationship that God has with us. And just worship God. If you want to know more about this Christ, how you can worship Christ, it's simply put, you have to cry amen like everything else. Amen. I believe. I trust. Throw yourself upon this Christ. Trust him that these benefits will be true, that these benefits will be carried out in their fullness, and wait for him to come back. Um, If you want to know more, um, come grab me at the back. Grab Bud. Grab the guy that you know, or girl that brought you here. Let's just take this time. We have, you know, some songs. Let's reflect on those benefits and just blow up in praise. I mean, just explode and start off by demanding of yourself. If you find that your heart's not in the place yet that you need to worship with, demand your soul to worship Yahweh and start reflecting on the benefits that he's bestowed upon us. Let me pray. Father, you are good. You are just. You are merciful. You're gracious. You're slow to anger. And you steadfastly love those who fear you. I pray that you would just create in us a heart to worship you. And that it wouldn't stop with just us as a congregation singing out praise but it would also lead us into desperately calling out to everyone to join in this song to you, the great amen. 
We pray these things in Jesus' name, and we ask that you come quickly. Amen.